Welcome to episode five of Around the Bar. This episode, we are joined by Brian Withrow. Brian is a recently retired business owner who is now enjoying the best of what life has to offer. He's an avid hunter, a dedicated musician, and music fan. He's a native of Dallas, Texas, but has now become a card-carrying Houstonian. Brian is also a huge sports fan, and we both share our love for the Houston Astros. Join us as we talk to Brian about life, music, sports, and everything else in between. Welcome to Around the Bar, the podcast series where we talk about the law, life, culture, and hopefully have some fun. I'm your host, Ramesh Raghu. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. Good deal. Good deal. So, hey, listen, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, like you said, I'm just recently retired. Was in the uh, landscape industry for the entirety of about 38 years. My own business for 22. Wow. And yeah, yeah. Just uh, February of 22, decided to sell the company, and uh, now just spending time with my wife and family and kids and grandkids. That sounds excellent. Excellent. So, where did you where did you grow up as a kid? So originally, I was born in Worcester, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. Uh, it's a small Amish town. It's known for Worcester College, good academic college there. And uh, it's a big claim to fame is uh, the birthplace of Rubbermaid and uh, Worcester Brush. If you've ever painted anything in your house with a paintbrush, typically it's going to be Worcester Brush. That is crazy. You know, we have an Ohio connection because I was born in Youngstown, Ohio. Really? Yes. So Worcester is not far from there. Well, Youngstown was where my parents first came when they came to India. That's where my dad did his, like, his residency and training. So I was actually born there, and then they moved to Houston. But the interesting thing is I went back to Ohio, went to college in Cleveland, and went to Case Western Reserve. No kidding. Yeah, that's where I graduated college from. How did you end up from Ohio to Houston? Give us that journey. So, yeah, uh, from Ohio, uh, early 70s, Rubbermaid packed up and moved to California. And that really put a big dent in uh, the economy there. So my mother packed us and the kids up, and... uh, Moved to Dallas. That was in 1970, and grew up there till 1994. And then I was offered a position down here to take over a maintenance department for another landscape company. And uh, myself and my children moved here. How old were you when you left Ohio? I was 10. Okay. Okay. So you, you were truly like a native Texan. I mean, you've spent the majority of your life here. For sure. I say y'all and fixing too. <laughs> Perfect. That's that is awesome. So tell me a little bit about your, your growing up. So I guess the, your formative years growing up, you, that was in, in Dallas. As a kid, what, were you into activities? What did you do? Yeah, so I did actually move back to Ohio uh, when I was between 13 and 15. And I really wasn't active in sports at all, uh, but I, my dad was. And uh, so I did play football in my freshman year. Uh, was not very good at it. Uh, I was small. I made up for it by being slow. <laughs> so I, I did not I did not play much uh, team sports. Uh, I was more into X sports, BMX, motocross, water skiing, mm-hmm. uh, things like that out, outdoors. Oh, that's excellent. And um, when you moved back to Ohio, you went back with your whole family or was it just you for those couple of years? And you did high school here in, in Dallas. Uh, it was just me when I went back. Okay. Went back there to live with my dad to kind of do a catch up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just spent a couple of years and then came back. My former years definitely in Dallas, junior high and my freshman year in, in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And then came back here and went through my junior year. So... You mentioned family because I know you. I know you come from a, a pretty big family, right? A pretty big, close family. 
Yes, uh, six sisters and a brother. So there's eight of us total. Four of us are share the same parents. Uh, mm -hmm. I have three stepsisters from my mother's second marriage and a half sister from my father's second marriage. Uh, but we are all close, uh, even though we're separated by distance between Wisconsin, Dallas, here, Montgomery. But yeah, we're we're a good close family, and it's uh, it's been a blessing. You know, I always I always find it interesting when people come from really big families because you know, growing up, I went to Catholic school. You know, every one of my friends came like there's they had four brothers or three sisters. You know, and I always came from this small nuclear family, so. It was always, I always looked up to it, and I, I want to say envy, but envy in a good way, right? I always thought, man, that would be so amazing to have, you know, so many brothers and sisters. So, what number are you in age? I'm second to the oldest. Okay. Yeah, so I was kind of the trailblazer for the trouble, you know, this is what you don't do <laughs> as you go through, you know, your, your older years. So, yeah, I was a little bit of a troublemaker going through school. In fact, I left home early at 16 okay. and started out on my own. Worked two jobs, went to school half a day, and did that through my junior year. Wow. Uh, so I missed really a lot of my home life in my high school years. Okay. So that's, uh, I got to do that with my children when they got into high school. Excellent, excellent. So, you know, I think that's a perfect segue. Let's talk about being a dad. A little bit of your history. You have two children, boy and girl. I know that you, you went through, uh, I guess, a tough time with your ex-wife at the time, and you took custody, and you were a single dad. That's correct. And you raised your two young children by yourself. And, and, you know, and when I think about that, I'm like, that is absolutely amazing. So uh, my daughter was born when I was 22. My son, when I was 24, I became a single dad at 26. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, it, uh, yeah, diapers to diplomas is what I, I like <laughs> to say. So talk about taking a big swing at adulting real quick, huh? Yeah, it was a big bite of the apple, no yeah. doubt about it, yeah. I think back to where I was at 26, and it was like, it was a little bit of a different trajectory. I was, at 26, I think I was studying and trying to pass the bar exam, <laughs> so. But yeah, um, that's crazy. When you think back on those times, Brian, I know as you get further away from them, obviously your life and your experiences shapes your memories. But when you look back, Share some of those experiences, you know, share some of the things that kind of stand out. Has the way you thought of things changed? Yeah, for sure. So when I first took custody of the kids, you know, I was young. Uh, I was not expecting it. I wasn't expecting the lack of, I don't want to get too detailed, but the lack of participation from their mother. So it was basically just three of us. We call ourselves the Three Musketeers, always have, always will. So yeah, it has changed. I, I, was, I was young, angry, scared, underemployed, if not unemployed some of the times. So it made things difficult. But during those difficult times, what I did find, there's always angels, either family, friends, or strangers on the street. If we were in a way that we just could not find a way, we're at the end of our tether, something always happened. Something always came through. So that has squashed any of that anger and discontent and mm -hmm. difficulty. And especially as the years go on, just knowing how blessings happen, it's it began then okay. and it has never left. And, you know, when you look back, I bet, you know, you think to those times and, you, you know, you can't put yourself back in that mindset. But now when you look back at it, you're probably thinking, some, those are some of the best times I ever had with them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've just formed a bond that is stronger to this day. It just it never stops growing. Just looking back on those difficult times, really as children, I mean, the things that I remember, they don't remember at all. They remember the good things. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they remember the the parties. They remember the get-togethers with family and birthdays. And they they remember all of that. And I think now, as they were, my daughter's now a parent. I have three grandchildren now. As her children are getting older, I get to relive that and just now they're in a better position. I get to relive their childhood through her children. I don't know how else to put that. Yeah. Well, look, what I could tell you, what I took from that, from what I took from your answer was that you were an amazing father. Because if you go back to that time and you think of what you had, what you were living with, what you were looking at, your kids only remember the good things. That means you did a great job of protecting them from all of that. So hats off to you. That That's truly amazing. Hey, look, even as a parent myself, I have to ask you, you must have faced some real challenges. Just, I'm talking just like day to day, you know, watching two kids at the same time and trying to take a shower. <laughs> so I couldn't even imagine how difficult some of that must have been. Yeah, it really was. And, uh, you know, trying to find employment, uh, especially when they got to school age. When when they were younger in preschool, I could go to work, drop them off the, at the sitters, and, you know, I knew that they were taken care of throughout the day, as long as it was a good sitter. And that was always a challenge. Daycare really wasn't an option a lot of times just because of the lack of funds. But then after I get home, you know, there's cooking to be done, there's house cleaning, there's homework, there's... <laughs> You yeah. know, just, just all of that. So everything that mom should be doing, you know, dad was doing. No, you did all the picking up and dropping off and all all of that, huh? It, at times. Uh, again, my, for a, a couple of years, we lived with my sister Karen and her husband, and we shared a home, and she was able to help with some of the transportation. She was uh, one of the big blessings, one of the angels I spoke of earlier. Big, close family, right? When I say that, I know you're, you're still close to your family. I know you and your brother are close. You and your sister are really close. Talk about some of those relationships that you've had with your brothers and, and your sister. I know you guys have spent a lot of fun times together. You guys are still close, even at this age, which is amazing. Yeah, uh, really, I'm distance has made getting together more difficult. So the frequency isn't there, but the quality of the times are there for sure. Uh, in fact, I just went on a five-day motorcycle trip through the hill country and spent a couple of those days with my brother, uh, where he lives in Wimberley, mm-hmm. and we just had a blast. Again, it's just, he's my kid brother. And this is Kenny. This is Kenny. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about him a little bit later because he's, he's got an interesting kind of career. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does, for sure. For sure. So, um, you remain close to your sister as well? Uh, Karen. Yes. Yes, for sure. And what does Karen do? Uh, Karen, she's retired now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she worked for an architectural firm. She was uh, executive assistant. Okay. Uh, she did all the coordinating between the different architects and things like that. You were talking about how difficult it was for you being underemployed to some extent unemployed. You started working very early, as you've, as you've mentioned. Talk to us a little bit about your career. How did you get into doing what you ended up doing and ended up turning out to be kind of your life's work? Well, it's almost by default. So I, I started working really early. I had a newspaper out at 12, and actually I had a newspaper out all the way through till I was 26, 27, till I uh, became a single parent. I wasn't able to do that because of the hours. Uh, and it was in and out of the food industry. Parents owned a barbecue restaurant, so I worked there, you know, weekends and summers, and continued that for many years, worked in dozens of different restaurants. There came a point I was just kind of tired of the hours, nights, weekends, holidays. So I had some friends that were on the landscape crew. This is in 1977, and I got on that crew, and uh, you know, I loved the physical aspect of it, and the hours were better. But what was the key point to really make Brian Garden's work, my business, was I've always been handy with, with pencil and charcoal and drawing. It was kind of my art. My family's all artistic. It was the, the plan that was there, the blueprint. And I just asked questions, you know, ooh, this, I was intrigued by it, the, the drafting of it. 
Uh, and I learned a bit. They, they showed me some of the basics, and then I moved on to different things. Kitchen and bath remodeling, framing. Uh, I worked for the Black IP restaurants in their maintenance department, where we maintained, repaired, remodeled restaurants, and set up new restaurants, as long with the landscaping. So that element was always there. And then 10 years later, from that 1977, I got into a company, it was a new company back then, Chemlon. And I started there, went through my apprenticeship, and got my licensure through uh, Texas Department of Agriculture, and uh, never left. Real quick, I don't mean to stop, but I want what kind of licensure? What, what do we... So it's for uh, ornamental and uh, turf grass uh, diagnosis and treatment. Okay. So there's actual uh, certificates and licenses that you would have in this, because this is all new to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, so if you want to perform pest control, okay. weed controls, you know, spraying insecticides and fungicides and fertilization, you have to go through a, an internship and go through the different levels to become a certified applicator, as well as doing landscape irrigation or sprinkler systems. You have to be licensed for that. Uh, okay, so that's what you meant by your apprenticeship. You went through those processes of earning certifications in order to allow you to be able to, uh, to provide these different services. That's correct. Okay. I stopped you right at, you got your certifications. You were, you said 10 years after the 77 point. So let, I'll let you pick up back there. So you then got invited from after Kimlon too? Yes. And then uh, I was there for several years and then I was offered a position here in Houston in 94 to come down and work for a company to kickstart their uh, maintenance program, lawn maintenance program. And worked there for several years and reached a ceiling and decided, you know, I've, I've had enough of this. If I'm going to work this hard, I'm going to do it for myself. Excellent. So when you were working for the company, when you moved here in 94, was it residential, like lawn maintenance? Were there, this, this division that they wanted you to kind of head up, was it like residential, commercial? Kind of speak to us about that. Well, predominantly what they had was just residential, and it was, you know, landscape maintenance, you know, mm -hmm. mowing, trimming, weeding, Mm -hmm. uh, they needed my license to extend that service mm -hmm. so they could get into the commercial aspect of it. And during those years, that's where my initial desire to get into the drafting part came back up because they had architects on staff, designers on staff. So I slowly but surely worked my way into that and gleaned from their experience and began designing landscapes. Okay, and now you actually had that ability to, to, to draw something out and draft it and put together the blueprints and all of that? Do. Okay. Yeah. And is that the part of the job that you like the best? It is. You know, I like the physical aspect of it, uh, just getting out there, getting your hand, hands in the dirt and that sort of thing. But the money isn't in the labor end of it. The money is in the sales and the, the upper management. Uh, but the design aspect of it, I do like a lot. Uh, the hand drafting has kind of gone astray now with CAD being, mm -hmm. you know, so so prominent. I wasn't interested in doing that. I really enjoyed the drawing aspect, the drafting aspect of it. So yes, I could draw city parks, lots of commercial properties. I did uh, a black bear enclosure, a lemur enclosure. Wow. The, yeah, uh, zebras and camels. Wow. There's a man had an exotic farm up in uh, in Willis. And I did all of his enclosures. So that was really interesting. Yeah, that, that must have been amazing. So when you decided to go out on your own, take us back to that time. You wanted to offer a full-service landscaping company? Were, were you focused on one area? Like, what was your vision at that time when you opened Brian Gardens? Well, really what I wanted to do is just be a freelance designer. Okay. I didn't want to have crews. I didn't want to have subcontractors. I didn't want to get into the 
the actual installation aspect of it at all. Oh, how that changed. <laughs> and all that changed. It certainly did, yeah, very quickly. So, yeah, uh, there were a lot of, uh, you know, one truck, small company guys that, that hired me to do all of that. But then the things that I designed and sold for them, they weren't able to install. They didn't have the, the artisan to do it. So they asked me to put a crew together and do those installations for them. And I had the first year I had a crew, and from there on after, I, I added a crew for the next 10 years. So my 10th year, I had 10 crews and sales staff and office staff. And How difficult was it? Because, you know, I know you didn't go to business school. I know you didn't have any formal training about running a business. How difficult and how challenging was it to learn just the logistics of business ownership? Well, luckily I started small and I had some good people around me and I was able to, to glean a lot of knowledge from the companies I worked for before, because they were they were smaller, they weren't corporate, mm -hmm. uh, either family owned uh, with a single outlet or family owned with multiple outlets. So I was able to get a lot of knowledge that way. But starting out, when you know, my first tax report, I didn't know what I was doing. I understood I needed a CPA really quickly, and and from that, hiring people that knew how to do these things uh, is where I, I gained my knowledge. Yeah, I paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Because I will tell you, some of the, you know, I, I also have that, that experience just in a different industry where I worked for the firm and now being part of ownership in the firm, I think some of the biggest things that came to me was how many different things I have to focus on that's not even related to the work that I'm doing just to keep the business afloat and how... My mindset had to change from smaller task-oriented uh, vision to larger, like, goal-oriented, you know, plans and, you know, processes, right? So I've always found that to be the kind of the biggest challenge because with owning your business comes having employees. With employees comes the human element and the issues that come with that. And, you know hiring the right person and investing a lot of time and then finding out they're not the right person. <laughs> These are all lessons that, that were tough for me to, to learn, but I'm glad I did. Right, and you, you described exactly what I went through in those, well, throughout the 22 years I was in business, none of that changed. The human element never changes. But yeah, I, I used to say a lot that I'm too busy working to do my job because there are so many details, the, the big picture, the umbrella that everything falls under, trying to catch raindrops, but there, there's always a leak. So when you started out, did you have a target market, per se, that you were looking for? Was it residential? Was it commercial? Was it mixed? Right. So at the time, uh, doing residential design, so it was outdoor living space, already sold homes or newly purchased homes, enhancements. Okay. So they had no backyard with a new home build. Uh, we would do patios, retaining walls, fire pits, water features, uh, extend their patios, gazebos, uh, planting, of course, irrigation drainage. So that was my target, to get that. If I couldn't get the package for, say, a DR Horton, some companies focus strictly on that, just the front yards, just get them in, knock them out very quick, down and dirty stuff. And the backyards were left to the owners to design and build out to their their wants and needs and how they're going to use it. And that's the target I went after. And it was very successful right through 2008. Things kind of hit a hit a bump in 2008 as far as the, the housing industry. Well, the housing market crashed and the economy crashed. I mean, 
If you think about it, Brian, I, I read somewhere in, in the Michael Berry book, uh, he's the guy who, who bet against the housing crash because he, he knew that the, the loans were, you know, they were not they were not properly rated. We were like two or three days away from the ATMs not putting out money, <laughs> you know? Okay, and when you were focusing on that, when did it become, you also did, because you did inside also? Did do some interiors, so that's when we got into, uh, and early on, once I put a crew together, I was approached by um, a man who worked for a company that manages and maintains water districts. Water plants, sewer plants, their parks, their meeting facilities, things like that, and I got the contracts for those for maintenance and enhancements. That's where the park construction comes in and that sort of thing, and the commercial aspect. Mm -hmm. Once I got that, then the commercial market just started to opened up more and more and so the interiors were really pet resorts we did uh, probably a dozen pet resorts around town okay. where they did interior water features with themes like a, a, a jungle theme for instance okay and we hired mural artists to come in and and paint the walls to to match the water feature like it was mm -hmm. the water feature was coming out of the wall and uh, things like that really really interesting things and that led to the fellow that we found that, that had the exotic animal farm okay. and, yep. and and all of that. So yeah, word of mouth just you know just kept on going. So we, we changed our uh, our business model to focus more on commercial and commercial maintenance after okay. two thousand eight. Because that's where that's where I was going with. That. I actually have two places I'm going to go. So first, commercial. That's kind of that's the market, right? That's what you guys are looking for, right? Do I have that right? Um, to an extent. Okay. Yes, it's definitely our focus. Uh, there is more money in it, but there's also less people to satisfy. If we go out and do 30 jobs in a residential in a month, we have 30 project managers. If we go out and do two much higher income commercial projects, we have two project managers. So ma managing those projects and that sort of thing becomes a lot easier. Okay. And I, I do want to go back to 2008. How scared were you when, when the recession hit in 2008 for your business? Quite scared. Uh, we did take a hit on the uh, on the installation end, especially because our business model was that. But luckily, we had already started that uh, that segue into uh, into the commercial uh, maintenance with the mud districts, HOAs, churches, uh, shopping centers. So we started focusing on the maintenance there. So the commercial maintenance carried us through that. I was going to say it really kind of saved you. It did for sure. How many years would you say it took you to kind of get out of that, out of that, like, you know, to kind of get back to where you were, or did you just shift focus from then? Yes, yeah, so probably three years up through 2011, 2012, building started coming in again, and uh, those calls started coming back in. Then I started hiring designers again and allowed them to take that market, and I focused more on the commercial. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced running your company? It had to be an employee having that many moving parts throughout the city. So if we had 14 trucks with four to six people in those trucks throughout the city in any given day, plus an office, plus subcontract crews, plus trade contract crews, uh, we had people all over the city. And keeping an eye on them and making sure quality control was there, safety was there, compliance with you know laws and regs, th that was really, really hard. Did you have like a, a top lieutenant that you could, that would help share some of this uh, responsibility with you or did it kind of just fall all on you? No, I mean, ultimately, you know, it came down to me in the end if something happened. But no, we had uh, we had superintendents out there and okay. the sales staff would go out and help with the, uh, the layouts of the new construction or, or remodel projects. So we had five to six people in the field that were overseeing the foreman and their 
in their jobs. Because I was going to say, hey, that would be so, I mean, you'd be stretched so thin trying to keep track of all of that by yourself. Anything else stick out to you in terms of challenges? Keeping insurance. Keeping insured and insured properly and making sure that uh, we didn't have any blank areas that weren't covered. Uh, because we were working with pesticides, uh, working with water plants where because of 9-11, mm -hmm. working inside water and sewer plants, it becomes, you know, it's public water. So tampering with public water became part of the Patriot Act. Oh. So if we're not installing an irrigation system properly and tainting a public water supply, this is something I had to learn the hard way. We, we didn't get in trouble, but had no idea this fell into place. So laws and regs changing and then making sure that we had the insurance coverages for that uh, was difficult. And then skilled employment, mm. stonemasons, bricklayers, carpenters, uh, licensed irrigators, uh, licensed pest control applicators. Finding an electrician, a plumber, or an HVAC guy is pretty easy to find because those are the more lucrative of the trades. Uh, the others, not not so much. People don't want to be a stonemason so much anymore. Mm. So it's hard to find those to keep them under your roof. Gotcha, gotcha. You never wanted to expand into the pool business? I, I pondered it, got close, uh, had an opportunity to, to partner with the pool company. And what I didn't, it, what talked me out of it was the fact that it was all subcontract work. Mm -hmm. I watched the progress of, of three pools being installed and there was z almost zero control of when the subcontractors would show. They were on their time. Uh, Gunnite people, for instance, there's a limited amount of Gunnite companies in the, uh, in the city at the time and plumbers and different trades that, uh, that were available and they, they worked at their own pace, their own time. And uh, doesn't work for you. No, it doesn't. I like everything under roof as much as possible. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it's interesting because the reason I asked is that I wanted to kind of know, uh, every person I know who's put in a pool after they've built their house and are not bought a house with the pool or not put it in. They always tell me two things. One, it takes twice as long as they say it's going to do, which you just validated. And Whatever your first estimate is that he gives you, double it <laughs> because that's what the cost is going to be. There are so many hidden things. Once you start digging a hole, there's already utilities there that need to be rerouted. There's trees, there's foundations, there's elevation changes. Uh, then the HOAs get involved and or developers. Yeah, it's, it's an ever-changing, fluctuating price. We built our pool at home. I had them dig the hole and gun on it, and we did the rest. Okay. Uh, and that's the only way that it got done in twice the time that it was supposed to. <laughs> As opposed to three times. <laughs> so, you know, because I, I, I have always wondered this, you know, these pool companies, I guess getting the relationship with a developer or a home builder would be absolutely crucial, right? Because if they're building a new subdivision and it's one where the price point for the homes, you know, you'll typically have a pool. To get that, that you know, typically, I guess you would work through the builder, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. A lot of things you do in the back, any enhancements over and above the original contract, uh, something that you would do through the builder. And typically, a lot of that needs to be cash up front. Yeah, because that's what I was getting at. I was like, you know, the, the market for people to put in pools has to be a niche market. I mean, look, I know a lot of people, but I don't know a lot of people that have 150 grand sitting around to build a pool with you know, or a hundred grand or whatever it costs from 50 to 150, you know, whatever that range is. Yeah. With new construction, most people would uh, roll that into the, uh, into the 
the loan. Yeah. Uh, but then again, anything over and above that contract, that's where everything is is cash. If you have a change order, you you pay for that change order up front. Yeah. So I'm, we almost got in some situations, uh, especially when 2008 was rolling up. Uh, the house wasn't closed, but our work was done, and they lost their their loan. Mm. So we were left holding the bag. Wow. Yeah. So there's there's different things to look for. Uh, the learning curve. Yeah. About things about uh, that you learn as you go along through business, and that was a, a tough one. Yeah. So I know you. Uh, February of 22 comes around. Had you been thinking about, hey, I'm getting ready to sell? Like, what made you decide that? Well, uh, in 2020, I had some phys- some physical health issues. Uh, neurological problems. I was having some fainting spells and things like that. So my wife was concerned. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, it's we're, we're getting closer. We need to start thinking about an exit strategy. And lo and behold, I ran across this man, Brandon Blair, who used to work for me back in the day, even dated my daughter way back in the day. That's how we met, became a family friend. He called me up and said, hey, let's, let's have a beer. So we did. And then leaving that, that evening, at the end, looked over my shoulder and said, hey, Brandon, you got to buy you had to buy Brian Garden, <laughs> and nothing was said of it. He just kind of gave me a chuckle. A year later, almost to the day, he called me up and said, let's meet again. And we went and had a beer, and then he brought it up and said, were you serious about that? And I was like, well, yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. Because by then, I was really having some difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stress was too much. Uh, I had stretched myself too much. So we put the thing into, into so you, motion. So you were so essentially you were getting older and you were getting tired. Yeah, and also, but and the reason I was tired and stressed is because I'd reached the max, my level of education, my level of talent mm-hmm. to take the company from the point I built it to into the next phase. I wasn't computer literate. I wasn't into CAD. Uh, I'd never run a company that large as it was, and it's destined to be twice as big, if not bigger, than what I've got it to. And it was just more than I was physically or mentally able to, to handle. I had no education. And, and the whole social media aspect now of advertising is, is completely different. All of that changed. You know, when I started, it was, you know, mail order, you know, mail, Valpac, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hiring kids to hang flyers on doors and, you know, some telemarketing. That's not what it is anymore. No, it's all TikTok and 30-second videos and as much as you can get your brand, (laughs) you know, in front of somebody's face, you know, and it's a a completely different ballgame and it's changed so quickly in such a short period of time. The last five years really was, it increased tenfold, just Mm -hmm. the speed in which things change. Uh, Even the, I would hire kids from uh, A&M to do internships. Uh, during the summers, and they'd come in and just they, they'd never seen this CAD program before that we had, and in in a week they were blowing and going. The people that we hired to do our uh, social media and uh, Google ads and things like that, I didn't know what they were talking about, so I had the interns talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for the marketing strategy of my business, come speak with my intern. <laughs> Oh, you want to talk about our business plan and growth and development? Hey, go talk to our intern. Yeah. But listen, I, I understand it. it. It is a foreign language. I mean, they, they talk about SEO and all of these things and metadata. And all, these were all terms that I, I, I had to learn, you know, and you had to do it to, in order to, to kind of to keep up because, you know, in our industry, in, in, the, in the legal world, I will tell you the people that don't embrace change, they're dinosaurs. You, you know, you have a lot of old firms that are, 
you know, they've been doing things this way for 40 years and this is what's worked. This is what's always worked. You know, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to expand or kind of diversify my, my knowledge base. They're going to get phased out because this is the only way, you know, social media and the way marketing and business goes now, this is the, this is the way it is. And it's kind of either embrace it or you got to go find something else, <laughs> you know? So do you miss it? Uh, sometimes I do, but you know, I had a 50 year career all in all. If I look back when I started working, you know, the preteen years, uh, I, I guess what I miss is uh, the feeling of contributing, just societal contribution. Mm -hmm. Well, you've paid a lot of taxes, so you're, yeah. you're, you've contributed plenty. <laughs> yeah, I certainly have contributed that way. So not really. You know, I do still uh, do some uh, consulting, uh, so I get some of that. But really, no. I, and, and what made me stop missing it uh, was the... Uh, the arrival of realizing that I can do one of two things. I can have more money or I can have more time. Mm -hmm. Well, time is limited. Time is what I chose. And, and I feel really good about that. That, you know, it's really interesting to say because, you know, my, my dad, before he passed, he used to tell me these things all the time. He was like, the one thing in the entire world that all of us have the same amount of is time. An hour is an hour, a day is a day, a week is a week. And he's like, you're young and you're not going to understand this because you have the advantage of time. He's like, when I'm at my age, time becomes a premium. It becomes, it becomes you know, a commodity. A commodity. And you, you look to that and you wanna spend that in your own way, right? Especially when you've been using time your whole, whole life to make sure that you can get to the next day. Right? Exactly. Yeah. You, know, you work this hard for what? Mm -hmm. For the good times you have with your family, friends, and loved ones. So I was fortunate enough to earn more time with just that, and I'm taking advantage of it, and it's, it's been the best thing I've ever done. Revisiting all of my hobbies, riding my motorcycles, getting back on the drum kit, and uh, drawing again, uh, spending time with my wife and children. It's just, it's been amazing. That's awesome. Awesome. And, and I'm glad you brought up the, those interests because I know you are a man uh, of many interests, but the, the one thing I think that surprised kind of me and so I'm sure some others is you got into hunting. I did. And you didn't grow up. This is what's amazing. Most people who are avid hunters, someone introduced it to them when they were young, either the dad or the uncle or the brother, and they spent their lives doing it. That's how they do it. I, I had never met anyone until I met you where you were like, no, I just decided I wanted to learn how to do it. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's how it came about. I was in my 50s before I purchased my first rifle. Uh, I was actually anti-gun all of my life. Uh, I owned one handgun for about six weeks back in my 20s. I couldn't figure out where to keep it, so I sold it. Mm -hmm. Do I keep it upstairs, keep it downstairs, keep it here, keep it there, I have young kids? I, I hated it, so I, I got rid of it and sold it. Yeah, but, the gun that was supposed to provide you some comfort ca caused you more stress. <laughs> it absolutely did. Yeah, it absolutely did. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't even think about it, and I got into hunting via uh, fishing. Okay. Uh, I had a friend of mine. Mike Stanfield, who uh, was really into uh, saltwater fishing and uh, wade fishing okay. down in the bay. And we took a friend of ours, Scuba Steve, with us, mm -hmm. and we all used to go and, and fish. Well, Steve uh, has been on a lease. He grew up in Wisconsin, like, as you said, as most people do, grew up hunting. Mm -hmm. And he was on a lease out in Crockett, invited me out there. 
just to come sit in the stand and experience and see what it was like. Mm -hmm. And did that several times over the course of a few years. And finally, I, I bought my own rifle and got a license. And he allowed me to, to take my first deer. And, uh, and it was a, an amazing experience to take it from that and uh, cleaning it and processing it and you know, becoming food on the table. I just... That there was something very animalistic and manly, or because I, you know, my my next question was going to be like, what is the, I don't hunt. Uh, I've been turkey hunting once. It was an absolute miserable experience, and not for the audiences that are going to listen to this podcast. So we'll share that off the record. But uh, and I went and sat in a in a blind once. Man, those were the only experiences uh, I've ever had because of our friendship. You've piqued my interest a little bit, but what's the appeal to you? What part of it do you like? Well, the hunting we do, especially in Texas, you know, most of it is you get some feeders with corn and you feed all year long and you get a blind and you sit in that and all year long you just sit there and feed and then when the season opens, you go out there and you, you take whatever comes out. It's not really hunting as it is all of that, but it's the preparation of the lease. It's, it's a year-long process with, you know, the, tilling and seeding and planting food crops and clearing roads and it's it's, it's a year-long thing just being in the woods okay so let me let me let me make sure i understand this so before you even started there obviously i know that there's certain seasons that you can go hunt so it starts in the off season obviously right when you're taking out when you're saying feeding like what what are you doing are you you're planting actual agriculture that these deer will eat or are you putting like, you know, treats out there that'll entice them to come in. How, how, what is that? Okay. So it's, it's both. So uh, there's feeders, automatic mm -hmm. feeders that we put uh, protein and different nutrients and corn uh, that we feed twice a day in certain areas and fields that we have cleared and tilled and prepared and seeded. Mm -hmm. And we'll seed with uh, any types of crops, uh, black eyed peas, clover, sorghum, mm -hmm. sunflowers, uh, just things to... to to feed them. And you do this because you want them, the animal, to have a, a comfort and a sense of safety to come in there, right? You're trying to lure them, right? So if, you're, if you have these feeders out there, you're doing that because you want them to be around knowing that there's food around here. The food. Okay. Yeah. Safety, they're pretty skittish as it is anyway, mm -hmm. but it's the food source where we're at. It's all yopon holly and pine trees. Mm -hmm. and not not a lot of food there for them. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have water on our lease, which is a, a bonus. Not so much this year because of the drought. Mm -hmm. So food, water, and a place for them to uh, to sleep is what you're looking for. And that's how you prepare your lease. And keep predators away. Uh, mm -hmm. Coyotes, bobcats, pigs. Being a pig, I'll come back to that real quick. But uh, So you do all of that. And then, I guess, is the passion more about the strategy and the setup? Or is it actually getting to that moment where you have your target in your scope? That... It's eight months of boredom and labor and toil for two seconds of absolute elation. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's the, the entire process for me, it's more primal to go through all that preparation, take the animal, process it, and just go from that to the table. Okay. And I'm very much an advocate of, of consuming what, what I take. I don't kill to kill. I've, I've shot coyotes because we're supposed to, but I'm not a fan of it, and I probably won't ever again because they take all the fawns. Mm -hmm. but I'm an advocate of, of eating. The reason I wanted to bring up the, the, the pig thing, I saw this, uh, this video about feral hogs, and I got to tell you, I was absolutely amazed, and I could not believe 
how they do this now. I mean, I saw videos where these guys are up in the helicopters and these guys are with AR-15s absolutely mowing these things down. And then I saw this other video where they were in a pickup truck and the guy had a technical and he was like literally- Hanging off the side. Yeah, just mowing these things down. But the interesting thing I've heard about when it comes to feral hogs is everybody hates them. They're like, nobody cares. Like, please kill them all. Because apparently they do a ton of damage to, to the land and they tear up farms and it causes a lot of problems for landowners, so. They do, yeah. So it's really, it, it's crop you know, destruction. So if we plant, we're on 900 acres, if we plant, say, 20 acres in food crops because it's so thick out there, 19 acres of it this year was damaged by hogs. No way. Yeah, and that's just for food plot for deer. So people are trying to make a living off of their crops, yeah. corn or whatever their, their crop is. Uh, yeah. They're really taking a hit. Wow. I, you know, I, I never really gave it, uh, you know, too much in-depth thought. And I, I, I just, I hear them and I hear them all just cursing at these pigs, you know? And like, they don't even eat the pig. They're like, hell no, we're not eating this. <laughs> Yeah, and that's debatable. You know, I have. The feral hog? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So smaller females, yes. Okay. We'll, we'll do that. You know, the larger boars and all that, absolutely not. Okay. They're fine to, to eat. You know, it's, it's a taste thing. Mm -hmm. Does it taste like normal pig? I didn't see a difference. Okay. Like you know. hog bacon and regular bacon would be the same? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's maybe you just take the whole hog and just put it on a... Okay. In a smoker and smoke the whole thing. So it's more like a pulled pork, the entire Okay, gotcha. Thing. That's the only way I've consumed it. That's good. Have you ever done it, hog hunting? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're out there a lot. So we're combating them over our, our deer. So they're out, we're, we're trying to eliminate them every day. Okay. Uh, what are the different types that you've hunted? Um, really just the turkey. I really enjoyed that. In West Texas, of course, deer. I have not done any exotic hunting. Duck and goose. Okay. Yeah, duck hunting is, it, it's a different animal. It's, it's a lot of fun. Where deer hunting is you spend the entire year for one shot, maybe two. You can take five total if you travel the state. With duck, you're, you're out there with a shotgun on the water and a blind freezing your tail off uh, and just blasting away. And turkey hunting, I understood, is, is really a lot of strategy because they're very sensitive and can hear and you have to use the right call and all of that. Yeah, and I've only done that a few times, uh, but they are sensitive to calling. Uh, they have great eyesight, so you've got to be very still. Typically, you want to hunt from the ground mm -hmm. as opposed to being in a tall stand like deer hunting. And yeah, learning to operate the different types of calls is, is a challenge. Uh, they, they know if, it's, if you're faking it. Okay. Uh -huh. Have you ever done it with a bow? No, I can't pull a bow back. I have tendonitis in my elbows, so I'm not able to pull back a compound bow. I have considered a crossbow, though. Okay, because uh, from what I understand, they've the way they've designed the bows now, it, they've made it a lot easier. You know, I've tried to shoot a bow and arrow, and I, I can't even get the arrow straight to pull it back, you know? so. But from what I understand is the way these professional bows are uh, are made, they've made it mechanical for you to be able to do that, right? Or is it still require precision and strength? Well, once you get it back in position, it's, they're built as such with a compound bow that the pressure is off, so you can, it's much easier to aim. They're, they're high precision now. I'm just not able to pull, get one back into the locked position. Okay. I just, I can't do it. I've beat my body up too much. Technically, I would assume bow hunting has to be harder. Yeah, because with a, with a gun, with, you can go out to a couple of hundred yards and beyond. Mm -hmm. uh, with a bow, it's 
50 yards and in. So you, so the creep. And it's a lob. It's not like a straight bullet. You kind of lob it out there. And, and, and I guess the creep up to the animal and all of that, that would probably be, be the fun, right? To get close enough. Right. And that's you sitting in a tree. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of tree stand people. Like right now, the uh, Sam Houston Forest, they're full of people in trees, uh, bow hunting and, and rifle hunting. So is there hunting where you're not sitting in a tree and you get to walk and try and find it and sneak up? Yeah, so if you have places where uh, lots of open fields, so in, in East Texas, we were on a lease where we had tens of acres, 30, 40, 50 acres of open field and, um, and planted crop. So there with pockets of trees, you can actually stalk. Okay. Uh, where we're at here, it's so thick with yopon and underbrush, you really can't walk through it okay. with any kind of quiet or... Yeah, you can't be stealth at all. There's no stealth. Okay. No, not at all. A couple more questions on this hunting thing. How would someone who knows nothing about hunting, how would you advise someone to, to get involved? Say they, they came across it, hey, I want to do this, but I've never shot a gun before, I've never been to a lease, I don't know any of what you just spent the last 10 minutes, 20 minutes telling us. Right. How, how would you suggest someone gets into that? Well, there are, uh, there's ranches that, uh, that you can go out to and pay to hunt. Okay. Uh, they're high fence ranches. Uh, you're out there with a guide and they will uh, basically tell you what you can and cannot shoot. They raise their own deer, a lot of them, or exotics. Mm -hmm. You really should go to a, a range, purchase a rifle, find someone you know that, that has uh, hunting weapons and get some, in, you know, some information on that. Uh, go to a range and learn how to shoot. There's people there that can teach you, gunsmiths and what have you that can you know, set your gun up for you and, mm -hmm. and just learn how to, how to shoot the weapon first and learn the safety, take a course in, in gun safety, and then go out to these ranches with, uh, it can be quite expensive, and go that way. Okay, and then you can, from there you can build and then you'll probably pick up additional information as you're doing all of this on how to, on what you want to do and what kind of hunt you want to do. To participate in exactly yes you get outside of texas and the, the hunting is a little bit different you know colorado is elk and up in there so different bigger animals and they stalk they actually go out and hunt the deer down where we're just kind of waiting for them to wander on in so there, there's different ways to hunt but you know you're just being a TikTok and the internet and everything else there are so many videos out there uh training videos that you can learn different techniques and especially specific for your area and how to, to set up a piece of land or find friends with the lease uh, that's that's a good way to go about it okay speaking of weapons tell us about the the, the the rifles or the weapons you use when you when you go hunting yeah so yeah i'm a lefty so i shoot left-handed i've got really just a small rifle it's 243 it's probably the smallest caliper hunting rifle you can get uh, i think this next step down maybe a 22. what gauge is your that 243. Okay, so that's the gauge. So see, it tells you how ignorant I am. Right, right. So it's, yeah, 243 is your bullet size, basically okay. your, your your cartridge. And it steps up to 43, 270, and it just goes on up from there, 30 out 6, 30, 30. Mm -hmm. um, I actually have a, a junior. It's a left-handed junior. So it's really, it's a, it's a small weapon. It, it's shorter. It's for kids. I like it because it's shorter to fit inside of the blind. Mm -hmm. And besides that, all I have is I have a, a Benelli 12-gauge shotgun for... Uh, for hunting duck and goose. Okay, so I went I went shooting one time and we I shot and I again didn't know and I still don't know much about guns or anything but I remember doing skeet shooting and I shot a twelve gauge okay and it was big but then I was handed a ten gauge. Oh my! 
and it ruined my back for like a week because I, I had I had inverse thinking and nobody you know I was out there with a bunch of guys that were you know they were blowing these these clay pigeons up okay All right and uh, you know obviously I was you know I was the clown amongst the group and they handed it to me and I'm like you know they must have thought I had some inherent knowledge which I absolutely didn't and I got this 10 gauge and it that boom and the recoil and the, the, the kickback it absolutely like threw my back out of whack i mean like no i'm serious i i, I, I was absolutely injured for like almost a week because i hadn't positioned myself correctly i hadn't you know i didn't really know anything so yeah, bad on your friends <laughs> <laughs> what are some of your favorite places to hunt uh i haven't hunted too many i've hunted uh just south of um san antonio pleasanton there's a ranch out there mm -hmm. uh some vendors took me out to do that uh uh, turkey hunting and uh, and deer hunting, a beautiful area, uh, much bigger deer. And Louisiana, like going there for the for the duck hunting. Okay, uh, have hunted you know Victoria area and down around there, even out in uh, in Willis. There's some areas to, to duck hunt, but Louisiana is just amazing. Uh, the sportsman's paradise, they call it that for a reason. It really is something else. Uh, have you ever done any dove hunting? So my, my, one of my good buddies, Ben Ag, his, his wife is from a town called Albany, Texas. And dove hunting is a big thing in that town. Like the first day of dove hunting, they have a, the whole town basically has a celebration. And I, you know, I went and actually just looked it up, what dove hunting was. <laughs> so have you ever done that? I have, yeah. Yeah, up in, uh, where was that? Uh, Buffalo, okay. Buffalo area. Yeah, with uh, some friends, I, three or four times actually. I'd forgotten all about that. That's a lot of fun going out and plowed down cornfields and with the dogs and yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. Is that yeah. it's seen from the movie uh, Eddie Murphy when he went uh, dove hunting and everybody's shooting, 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 and then the one falls down and he looks at the guy and goes, "Must have had a heart attack." <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's pretty accurate to the, <laughs> my first experience out there. Uh, so. They fly very quickly. Yeah. All right, uh, I'm gonna shift into a different gear, and one of something we're talking to about a topic that you and I share a, a real passion for, and that is music. Music's been a big part of your life and your family's life. What instruments do you play? How'd you get into it? Uh, I play drums, trap kit. Okay. Yeah, and I uh, got into it a little bit later. I mean, my high school years, uh, I was around it. You know, my friends uh, played, you know, guitars, drums, and bass. Uh, so I just, I never had my own kit. So I'd sit down and, and play. And my brother was a guitar player. Uh, so musical was in the house. My father sang uh, back in the day. So did you know, play guitar? Mm -hmm. Did you play guitar? I never did. I tried. Again, I was a left-hander. Okay. So I never had a left-handed instrument. And actually, I tried playing drums originally. I had such a hard time because they were set up for a right-handed player. And finally, someone had the bright idea to turn them around and set them up for a lefty. And it's like, oh, okay, the bell went off. And then I started playing. And then within two years, I was playing uh, out in clubs in, uh, in the Dallas area. That's amazing. Real quick side note on this left-handed thing. So I'm also a natural lefty. But when I was uh, growing up, my parents made me write with my right hand because they told me the world is designed for right-handers. So you must have had a hard time at school with the right-handed desk when you were writing, you know? Never had anywhere to put my elbow. And you also had, there's one pair of left-handed scissors. <laughs> yep. 
So it's amazing how much things have changed. But uh, yeah, I'm a natural, like I throw left, I play golf left, I do, you know, like baseball left, but I absolutely write with my right hand. That's something. They tried to get me to do that in, in uh, kindergarten, first grade. Mm -hmm. They had me hold my hand behind my back. I just couldn't do it. And they were tired of trying to, you know, read it. So <laughs> just kind of gave up on me. Mine, they actually tied it. No kidding. Because they really did not want me to write with my left hand. And, you know, there's a cultural aspect to that, too, from, from our, you know, from Indian culture. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I've always written with my right hand, uh, but I've done everything left. Okay, so back, back to music. You said you were playing in clubs. You uh, part of any bands? Yeah, several, actually. And most of them were uh, uh, original bands, which mm -hmm. was all original music. I did write some lyrics to uh, one band I was in. It was called Night Parade. We were together for three or four years. We probably had the most success mm -hmm. in the uh, in the club scene in the early 90s in Deep Ellum and Lower Greenville and Dallas. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I had a, a lot of fun with it. And yeah, probably five to six different bands. Okay. Probably in two or three at a time. Uh, so when you were part of the, uh, when you were part of these bands, were... Were you part of that, the, the creative, uh, you know, the creative part? Did you like write, did you like to write music? Did you like to come up with, you know, the beat or the, or, you know, like the guitar, the riff? Like, how did that, how did that work for you? Um, well, it's kind of like a jam situation. Mm -hmm. So um, I did like writing lyrics and the one CD, uh, CD that we did, I probably wrote half of the lyrics on it. Okay. So I enjoyed that part of it. Uh, but everyone, it was like, community type thing would someone start off with a riff and someone else would just you know put something to it and sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't sometimes people would come in uh, the guitar player would say you know he'd written almost a complete song you know mm -hmm. an intro chorus you know verses and we'd take that and, and build on it so song making and finding the right kind of sound and melody it seems like such a difficult task for someone like you know for someone like me i i see that being completely you know almost impossible to to have and i always look up to people who have that ability to 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 kind of to do that to to create you know to start from a riff and then build around it you know right yeah in my experience it's been it was Pretty much collaborative just okay. with the people that I played. Now I was never really uh, what I would call a gifted player. There's people that play, there's people that are gifted. I never considered myself a gifted player. My brother, however, and my son, they're gifted players. Mm -hmm. uh, they can take a song from you know beginning and end and, and, and tell you what to do. Okay. You know, for your part. I was I'm not that. So you just mentioned your brother. I know your brother is a professional musician and has been for a long time. Let's let's share with the audience. What is your brother? What does he do and who does he play for? So Kenny Withrow, yes. So he uh, was a guitar player for Edie Brickell and New Bohemians. Uh, they had a big hit back in the 90s, What I Am. And he did the whole the, the rock star thing. They did the MTV video thing. Mm -hmm. They were on Arsenio Hall and David Letterman and Jay Leno. They toured um, the States and Europe. They opened for the Grateful Dead. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that was that was pretty cool of them. Uh, they toured with um, Don Henley. Did an American tour with them. They did a European tour with Bob Dylan, which is just you know heaven sent kind of stuff. There did the Willie Nelson Fourth of July picnic a couple of times. Wow. Yeah, he really was able to uh, experience a lot of different things. Is uh, Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians are they they're still together, right? 
Um, they are sort of. It's an unfortunate event. The bass player Brad Hauser passed away this this summer. Oh, I did not know that. I'm sorry. To hear that. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that was that was unfortunate. And it was just a few weeks after they finished recording their next album. So right before they're about to go on tour. I don't know if they were going to tour. They were still trying to mix it down to put it out for release. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. So they started out their first EP back in, oh gosh, probably 86. Mm -hmm. It was called It's Like This. Okay. And Brad had the bright idea for this past, this last album to call it It's Like That, for it to be like that's the final album. The bookend, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then he ended up passing away. Oh, man. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, but they're so, so good. Uh, if you're into jam bands, I know you are, like the Grateful Dead and, uh -huh. and all of those and Fish. Uh, yeah, they, they began as, as a jam band, and it was just amazing to watch them. Great inspiration for me. That, that's amazing. Now, you said uh, something about Don Henley, and maybe I'm not remembering this correctly. Your drum kit at your house, there's some story behind it. There is, yeah. My brother gifted me that. So uh, while they were touring with Don Henley, uh, they had uh, their drummer, Matt Chamberlain, who is now one of the most recorded drummers ever uh, as a studio musician. He wanted a practice kit backstage to warm up with. So And, and that uh, that was a warm-up kit for the Don Henley tour as theirs. And I don't know if Don Henley actually played on it or not, but I'm going to say he did. Hey, that's so, it. Yeah. Let's go. We'll, we'll yeah. go with that. We'll yeah, go with yeah. that. That's awesome. It's, it is an amazing kit. I mean, it, every time you know we come over, I love to see it. So Your son, also a professional musician, Corey, talk to us. I know you're a proud father. He has put out some amazing, amazing, amazing music. I like his sound. It's my kind of music. <laughs> so... Uh, tell us a little bit about Corey. Yeah, Corey Withrow. Yeah, so he had, uh, he's a singer, songwriter, guitar player, plays bass as well. He had a band in the 2010s, uh, A Tragic Fake. It was more of an emo punk band. Mm -hmm. uh, they did quite well. Did uh, festivals, uh, South by So What, uh, did a, a tour through California, from Texas through Colorado, California, all of that. Uh, had some publications they were in. I want to say Spin Magazine, but that's not right. It's another one like Spin. Put out a couple of VPs and did really well. And he put that away for a while after after all of that and wrote a novel. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I'd forgotten about that till I started thinking about him. So, yeah, I wrote a novel and started another. And, um, and when that kind of slowed down, he got back to writing songs again and bought an acoustic guitar. And kind of changed his approach to music and got back into it. And now it's... He's got, it's uh, pop punk with an acoustic front, and it's a really cool sound, something really different, kind of reminiscent of, say, Blink-182 and that era 90s punk <clears throat> with an acoustic front. It's really, really good. I'm proud of him. It, it sounds great. Check it out. Yeah, I was going to say, give us a free plug. Name of the band. <laughs> yeah, the band is uh, uh, The Carousel Predicament. The Carousel uh, Predicament. And you can yeah. find them on all your typical social media platforms. They have pages. Uh Make sure you guys check out uh, Carousel Predicament and let you know like and subscribe. Okay, I know you, you know you're living the great retired life. We both share also a love for traveling. Where where have you traveled lately? So yeah, the last past year we started with Italy. Did a did a tour of Italy from Rome and Venice and Florence and Must down to amazing. the coast. It was absolutely amazing. Kudos to my wife. I've yeah, she's she gets me out of the house. I'm I, I can be a homebody at times. She loves to travel. So yeah, we there did Jamaica just recently. Just got back from the hill country. We spent our anniversary up there in Wimberley. Oh yeah, uh, on the Blanco River. Headed to Maine in January. Okay, and hope to be. Uh, 
we're talking Spain or Ireland for next year, I think. We had an opportunity to go to uh, Taiwan with our neighbors, but had to pass on that, unfortunately. Okay. So we, it sounds, they just spoke last night, so we may be headed there. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Well, Spain's on, kind of Spain's on, on my wish list. I've heard it's beautiful. I've never been. So hopefully you, you'll get to knock them all off. What's the one place you do want to go? I want to see the Northern Lights, so Iceland, Greenland. Okay. Iceland, maybe not right now. They're having a little volcanic activity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to see the Northern Lights. That's just always been, as a child, I've always wanted to see. Awesome, awesome. Sports. I know you're a sports fan. We have shared many evenings at the ballpark or at the stadium together. Your favorite teams? Um, baseball, of course, the Astros. Uh, growing up in Dallas, you know, Ryan was there during that time, so I was a Ranger fan. Watched them go to two World Series. Unfortunately, couldn't pull it off. Uh, they did this year, so kudos to them. Football, I, yeah. I mean, you can't grow up in Dallas and not be a Cowboy fan. Yeah, I have to admit it. I know it's. it's I mean, there's no problem. There's this. Uh, you know, our entire law firm has a bunch of Dallas Cowboy fans in it. So. Yeah, and it's hard not to be. I mean, they haven't had much luck lately. You know, I, I started watching the Cowboys back when Roger Staubach and Craig Morton were battling for the starting position. Oh wow! So this is way back in the early '70s with uh, Lance Rensel and oh gosh, uh, Drew Pearson. Oh wow, those are, that's a name. <laughs> Yeah, way, way back. So, yeah, the Cowboys. I've never been much of a basketball fan other than 94-95 Rockets. It was hard not to be when you're here. It was just all-encompassing. That's when I first moved here, and I really had no experience with basketball. Dallas didn't have a team yet. You think they had the Mavericks? They just weren't very good. The Mavericks, that's right. Yeah, yeah. the Mavericks were, were there. Part of that, they had a, a, a lower team. What were they called? What was the A B they had the red, white, and blue ball? What uh, was that? that? Yeah, that was the I think it was Chaparrells, the Dallas Chaparral. I think it was the ABA team, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't quote us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a bucket list sporting sporting event you want to go to? Um Yeah, two actually. So it, they're really more in racing though. Okay. So I'd love to see the TT Isle of Man okay. motorcycle race. Yes. And then I would love to go to uh, Le Mans. The 24-hour Le Mans yes. race, that mm -hmm. would be amazing. That would be quite the experience. Mm -hmm. And it's, an, it's actually an amazing race that has a huge history behind it. It's incredible, yeah. Um, back in this, you know, when I was a child in the 60s, uh, indie racing was a big thing. So A.J. Foyt from the Houston area mm -hmm. was into that. They, they raced everything. Uh, Mario Andretti. Mm -hmm. So I was really into... Indy cars and, and that sort of thing, and rally cars and the Le Mans racing. Well, you know F1's making a comeback, right? So. They certainly are. <laughs> okay, so listen, I know we've kind of covered a lot of things here. As you know, if you've listened to any of the other podcasts, I like to end with some just quick hitters. So I, I tailored these for you, okay? So I'm going to go easy on you first. Three favorite places to eat in Houston. Oh, gosh. Uh, Fleming's in the Woodlands. Like that. That's just a good casual place with great cocktails and food. Um, you can't live in the South without barbecue and Mexican food. Um, I'm trying to think of the best barbecue right now. Probably, I think it's Texas Chocolate and Barbecue and Tomball. I've heard of it. A really good. Or Two Guys in a Pit. And what we're doing now, we don't have the favorite yet, but my wife and I, we keep going around looking for new Mexican food restaurants. Okay. I, I, it's the name, it, it escapes me. It's in Tomball as well. Though. Okay. All right. Not a problem. All right. Uh, favorite style of gun you use for hunting? 
Uh, if I had to change, I'd uh, go with 270 Winchester. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And here we go. Mount Rushmore of music bands for you. Um, Led Zeppelin has to be there for sure. Uh, you just can't not do that. Fish has to be there for sure. Uh, John Mellencamp. Okay. Uh, which is a weird one. It's either him or Springsteen, because I'm going through different eras here. And, um, golly, I hate to not say the dead, but, you know. It's your Mount Rushmore. Yeah, yeah. There's just, there's just so many. Probably back more than something Motown. I know, it's hard to narrow it down when yeah, you have it's a wide, wide, wide variety. Yeah. yeah, let's just go with the ones I said. All yeah. right, good yeah. deal. And yeah. the last one. I know we've gone to a lot of shows together. I know you've gone to a lot of shows. Give me at least two of the favorite concerts you've ever attended in your life. Well, definitely Led Zeppelin in the 77. Okay. Yeah, it was their last tour. That, that was just unbelievable. Um, Springsteen in the Cotton Bowl was really good. Oh, Red Rocks with um, um, Bon Iver. Bon Iver. Bon Iver at Red Rocks was absolutely amazing. That is a bucket list venue for me. I've never been. So I've heard the Red Rocks is amazing. Yeah, I'd like to see Dicks. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to see Fish and Dicks. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see Red Rocks, Dicks, and I'd like to see The Gorge, but, you know. Yeah, and sure, and of course, the uh, the Mothership. Yes, 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 Hampton, Virginia. <laughs> that that actually would, would, be, would be amazing. Well, Brian, I really, truly appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think we covered a lot of ground, and uh, I learned a lot today. So I really appreciate the time, and I thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy being here. It was awesome.